I've been a wedding photographer for nearly 10 years and I've thought I've seen it all. Trashy, beautiful, tragic, hilarious, or just bizarre. I have stories. I've had the typical groom getting caught with the maid of honor, family getting to brawls, brides ODing in the bathroom, gay couples having no one to attend their weddings, or worse, the one uninvited homophobic relative crashing just to be a dick. But we aren't here for the typical stories. If we were, we'd be here all day. We're here for the wedding from last October. Fall weddings are probably my favorite. If I ever get married, I'll probably get hitched in the fall. It was the parents of the brides that came to me, asking for my services for a wedding in two weeks. Their original photographer apparently up and quit on them, and they were desperate to have their darling daughter's wedding immortalized in picture format. Luckily for them, I had a clear schedule. I did charge them extra for the suddenness of it all, but judging from the father's Rolex, it wasn't that big of a deal. One thing I'm good at is guessing family's wealth status, and once again, I was on point. The sea rights were rolling in dough. Not that I really like them though. I'm not required to like all my clients. Although, it does make for things to be a little more relaxing. Harold Seawright absolutely leered at my chest whenever he thought I wasn't looking. And Carol was clearly a trophy wife that was over the hill that generally looked more like plastic than her. Nothing wrong with getting plastic surgery or Botox, but there's got to be a cutoff at some point. I think I should have been more off-put by the parents coming to me rather than the bride, but I just figured said bride was too busy with other wedding planning shit and didn't think too hard on it. Day came and uh, oh boy, I realized I was getting into something I didn't want to be a part of right away. First time I saw the bride, Tanya, I had a brief moment of, I don't know how old this girl is. She could have been 16, she could have been just 18, definitely not over 20 though. I see young marriages when it's a shotgun affair, but then I met the groom, Marcel Wingate, who was definitely no younger than 30, and Marcel was just, something felt off. The man was a giant for one, he towered over me, let alone Tanya, with his long, pale face and sunken eyes, he could have been fucking Lurch from the Adams family. When he shook my hand and introduced himself, I barely repressed a shiver. But years of practice helped me to smile and act like there wasn't something slimy about all of this. Tanya never said a word when she was made over for her big day. Only Carol did, chirping and twittering about, How about you make her hair a little bigger? Or, make her eyes pop. She has such pretty eyelashes. Luckily, Carol had to go have a smoke every 15 minutes so the makeup and hair people could have a few moments of actual work. By the time it was all over, Tanya looked perfect. Her dress was basically a white ball gown. A tiara was placed on her strawberry blonde hair, cheeks blushing in a perfect pink. But unlike most brides, she still hadn't said a word, and those sure as hell weren't tears of joy that she was holding back. I'm sure you heard about the first look photo fad. I find it great to get a perfect expression that the groom makes when he sees the bride in a dress for the first time. It's usually quite cute. This was the first time I ever shot a photo where I truly believe it was the first time the bride and groom have actually looked at each other. Marcel did seem to have his breath taken away by the lovely bride, but her expression was less than thrilled as he took her hand and gave it a tight squeeze. My stomach turned when he leaned over for a kiss on the cheek and she quite obviously flinched. 
It's time I put a pin in the myth that arranged marriages only happen in foreign countries and only people from certain cultures take part in it. They happen all the time in the US and more often than not, it's an old man who wants a virgin bride and by virgin, I mean still in fucking high school. This wouldn't be the first one I was hired to photograph. I managed to catch Tanya alone in the room she got ready in, sitting next to an unopened window twirling an unlit cigarette between her fingers. Need a light? I offered as I came in. No thanks, I don't smoke. But they say it makes you feel better, right? Looking up at me with those doll-like blue eyes. It also gives you lung and throat cancer. I took the cigarette from her and lit it up myself. But I'm a bad example, so do as I say, not as I do. Now that got a smile out of her, even if it only lasted a second. How often do you smoke? She asked. Depends on the day. Usually I have two or three. Bad day, I can have a few more. I lowered the cigarette and looked down at her. How old are you, Tanya? Nineteen. Twenty in a few weeks. I have a bit of a baby face. She poked one of her cheeks. Why do you care? I glanced at the door to make sure Carol wasn't going to barge in. Tanya, are you not okay with this? The wedding? I asked quietly. Tanya's eyes widened. Damn, you're good. She also glanced at the door. Harold, my stepdad, arranged all of this. If he had it his way, it would have happened when I was 15, but Marcel kept delaying. Business, apparently. He tried to delay another year, but my dad implied that he had other offers. She shivered and wrapped her arms around herself. If I say no, Harold will kick me out and cut me off, freeze my bank accounts. I have nothing and no one and I don't know what I would do if that happened. I reached into my purse and pulled out one of my business cards. Flip over the card. It's a number for a women's shelter. They specialize in helping women escape from dangerous home situations. They hide them and help them get started in a new city, if need be. Below is my personal home number, if you just need to talk, okay? Tanya took the card and clung onto it tightly and tucked it into her bra. You might be the nicest person I've ever met, she murmured. I gave her shoulder a squeeze. I try, before extinguishing the cigarette on the windowsill. If you ever need to escape any time tonight, just ask me to help you go to the bathroom. We can pull a whole runaway bride, I joked. That got another laugh out of her, just in time for her mom to pop into the room. Well, what's taking you so long? Hurry up, the wedding's gonna start in 15 minutes. I don't want you to cry and make your face all blotchy and ugly, she whined. Tanya's brief joy faded and she gave me one more sad look before following her mom out. The ceremony would have been so much more beautiful if I didn't know the dirty little secret behind it all. Tanya didn't smile. I don't even think one of those bridesmaids was actually a friend of hers, or at least not a sincere one. When the priest said, you may kiss your bride, Tanya let a tear slip down her cheek when Marcel leaned down to kiss her. I was seriously considering calling the cops, but what could they do? Tanya would likely cave and say nothing was wrong, and since she wasn't a minor, they couldn't label Marcel as a pedo and her stepfather as a child seller. It still didn't make the situation any less shady. All I could do was snap pictures of the worst day of Tanya's life. At the reception, I was constantly being nagged by Carol about what pictures to take. 
to the point where I wanted to rip her hair out. But I did notice something different about the first dance between the couple. Tanya at first was stiff as a board, reluctant to even touch Marcel. But he leaned down and whispered something into her ear. Her entire demeanor changed in the blink of an eye to one of surprise and I managed to read her lips. Really? Marcel nodded and I managed to catch a picture of the first smile Tanya had since she said I do. By the end of the dance, she was actually starting to get into it, resting her head on his chest and swaying to a thousand years. It was a complete 180 change. Tanya was now one of the happiest and dare I say flirtiest brides I've ever seen. She leaned up to kiss him on the cheek as they sat down, something that even took Marcel by surprise judging by how he blushed. I generally started to wonder if Marcel slipped something in her drink to get her acting so happy when Carol started nagging me again about where her husband was. She was the kind of mother who forgot that this was her child's wedding instead of her own and she wanted pictures of her and Harold. In order to get the fuck away from her, I told her I'll go find him. He had been hitting up the open bar a little hard that night. I assumed that he was in the bathroom either throwing up or cheating on his wife. It could have gone either way at this point. When I approached the men's room, I heard something that sounded like gargling or swallowing. Ew, I know. But I kind of hoped it would ruin this nasty bitch's day if her husband was really cheating. So I opened the bathroom door with my camera at the ready. I made contact with Harold, or rather, I made contact with Harold's head. It was sitting in the sink, expression twisted in abject horror. The room was soaked in blood, body parts strewn all around the floor. Meanwhile, Marcel had stripped out of his tuxedo and was currently swallowing Harold's arm, whole. Now, I was wondering if I had something slipped in my champagne. Humans can't unhinge their jaw like that, each gulp taking Harold's arm deeper down his throat. I saw the tips of Harold's fingers disappearing like a small wave of goodbye, and then I dropped my camera. Yes, I heard something break. No, I didn't care. I just saw the groom eat the goddamn father of the bride. Marcel's head shot up, and his eyes, before now they were dull, watery gray, but now they were molted brown and red with slitted pupils. I felt frozen when those eyes looked at me. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. One moment. Marcel turned to the sink that was free of the man's head and vomited. I heard several things clatter on the porcelain before he fetched them out and washed them off. With an embarrassing clearing of his throat, he walked up to me and pulled me into the bathroom. I thought I was dead, but instead Marcel placed several diamonds in my palm. For the camera, I didn't mean to startle you. Uh... I managed to get out as I stared at the handful of diamonds. This would pay for more than the camera. Why did you? Devour Harold? Oh, I've wanted to do that for years. Marcel chuckled as he grabbed some paper towels to wipe off his chin. Like that would take away from the fact that he still had a naked body in front of me. A terrible person actually tastes quite divine. You would taste absolutely terrible. It would be like swallowing nails. Meanwhile, a man who offers his own daughter as a sacrificial lamb to someone he knows eats humans. He tastes like the richest cut of steak, cooked medium rare, and seasoned to perfection. Jesus Christ, this twisted situation had taken a whole new level of fucked up. Wait, he is seriously? 
Oh, absolutely. Marcel snorted, and he do it again. All for what happens when my stomach possesses human bone. I clutched the diamonds. You're not going to hurt Tanya? I asked. Marcel shook his head vigorously. God, no. I kept delaying the wedding in hopes that she would manage to find a way out, but I think Harold was getting bored of my cold feet. There would be plenty of others willing to pay for her, even if my payment would be easily trice what others would offer. God, I started to feel a little dizzy. Here I was, talking to a human-eating groom. I glanced out the door, and a horrible idea entered my brain, one that would surely earn Marcel's good favor and help out Tanya. So if I told Carol she could find her husband in the men's room, Marcel seemed puzzled for a second, but caught on quickly with a nod. He picked up the head and tossed it into one of the stalls. I heard a splash in one of the toilets and almost started giggling. I was nearing hysteria. Go right ahead, I'll be waiting, he said as he kicked some more limbs out of sight. I almost left when I had to ask one more question. What the hell are you? Marcel cocked his head to the side before he changed, just for a second. One moment he was a blood-soaked man, absolutely horrifying but normal. The next he was a snake, sort of. His body was gone, replaced by the body of an anaconda, but his head was still the same, minus the flick of a slim, forked tongue in his mouth. Then he was back to normal. He responded with a shrug. Funny enough, I was hoping you'd tell me. I don't have a clue. I left the bathroom and bumped into Carol almost immediately in the hallway. Well, where is he? I pointed my thumb towards the bathroom. Think he's not feeling so well, I said before I was nearly bowled over by the grumpy bitch. I watched long enough for her to open the door and for the scaled tail to shoot out, snag her around the arm and drag her into the bathroom before I headed back to the wedding. The problem seemed to solve itself. Marcel came back, the men's room locked after apparently someone got quite sick in there. Tanya no longer had to behave a certain way to please her mom, and I think she had a good night. I used my backup camera to make sure I got all the pictures of her smiling. Carol and Harold vanished into thin air, never to be seen or heard from again, and the diamonds paid for quite a nice new camera. Like I said, it's been a year, and I sure as hell haven't forgotten about the wedding. But what prompted me to share it was that I got a friend request from Tanya on Facebook. I normally don't accept friend requests from previous clients, but this one time I chose to make an exception. She does look so much better. She's going to college. She now sculpts and paints. She regularly volunteers at the women's shelter I directed her to when we first met. And every Friday night is a group date night at the local arcade with some of Marcel's friends that now appear to be her friends as well. Apparently, Marcel is quite a dance dance revolution master, but is terrible at shooting games. Her most recent photo was her and Marcel smiling, and she was holding up an ultrasound picture. Ding. My phone vibrated and I looked at it with excitement. A new message from Peter. As I read it, I could feel my cheeks getting red. Would you like to meet up on Tuesday? I made a little dance and replied immediately. 
I had been waiting for him to ask me out since we started chatting. I knew I could have just asked, but I was too shy. It was just fortunate for me that he had the guts to ask me out. Yeah, I'd love to, I wrote back. We wrote each other back and forth about where we wanted to meet and what we should do. We agreed to grab coffee and maybe have dinner if we hit it off. I called my best friend Sarah and told her all about my new date. I'm so excited Sarah, I can't wait to meet him. I told her over the phone. She seemed a lot more skeptical than me. How long have you guys been writing together? Do you know anything about him? What if he's not who he says he is? I know you're concerned that he's a crazy person, but it was also you who told me to meet someone after I broke up with Brian. So come on, I'm only doing what you told me. Besides, it's so cliche to murder someone you meet online. Yeah, I know what I said, but I didn't mean meet someone online. I offered multiple times to go out on the weekends, but he never took me up on my offer. I promise to text you when I meet him and give you updates so you know that I'm alive. I chuckled. Fine, just remember to take care of yourself and don't do anything you're not comfortable with. We said our goodbyes and the rest of the day I spent fussing over what to wear on the date and read our old messages so I could remember what his favorite band was, his favorite movie, and how much I told him about myself. I was so nervous before our date that I couldn't eat anything all day. I put on a fine dress that wasn't too revealing and neither too boring. Half an hour before we were supposed to meet, I walked down to the park and started waiting for him. I kept looking at my phone and feeling the need to run away. What if he really was a psycho? Or even worse, what if we didn't have any chemistry in real life? I tried to push those concerns aside when I saw a man my age with brown hair and glasses approach me. Hi, are you Cassie? He asked me nervously. Yeah, and you're Peter? It's very nice to meet you. We gave each other an awkward hug and decided to walk around the park for a bit. It was no effort at all to talk to Peter and I quickly became relaxed in his company. He was very funny and asked me if I had been concerned about him being a maniac. I told him about Sarah's warnings about meeting someone online. Don't worry, I didn't bring my axe. I couldn't fit it in the trunk of my car. He laughed and looked at me. After we had our coffee, we decided to skip dinner and have a couple beers. Peter quickly became drunk and talked nonsense, and I laughingly pointed out how he's the worst lightweight I had ever seen. I swear, I normally don't get this drunk off one beer. I guess it's because it's been a long day. You know, I looked forward to meeting you, so work felt like an eternity. I smiled and told him I felt the same way. It soon became clear that I had to take Peter home after he had a couple beers. I didn't mind helping him find his way home, and it's not like I was already going to sleep with him or anything. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. He lived a couple streets from the bar, and with me supporting most of his weight, we finally got there. Peter kept missing the keyhole, so I took the keys from him and let us inside. He almost fell on the floor but managed to stumble through the small apartment and land on his bed. I couldn't help but laugh a little, and I closed the door. I made sure it was locked before I walked into his bedroom. Peter had trouble keeping his eyes open, but I was sure that he saw me pull out the rope and the butterfly knife from my big purse. 
His eyes almost disappeared under his hair as he saw me get ready for business. I know you didn't expect this. Most of you guys never do, but it's just way easier to find people online. Besides, who would ever be afraid of a small woman in a cute dress with flowers on it? Now you've learned that you probably should have been, but it's way too late for that. I smiled at him with my pearly white teeth as he tried to scream through his sedated state. I couldn't help but laugh at his patheticness and got to work. I longed for the nights where my mother would don an evening gown, punctuate every sentence of her lecture with the clicks and the clacks of her high heels as she strutted to the door and left a deep red imprint of her lips on my forehead before she allowed herself to be whisked away by her suitor of the night. Those nights were rare when your single mother works 12-hour shifts at a local nursing facility and comes back home to a long evening of drinking, loud television, and heated arguments with her children. This night was better than all the others because the universe had aligned the plans of everyone in her household to collide, leaving me behind for at least five hours worth of quiet alone time, something I rarely got. I was in my bedroom, my secret stash of snacks scattered all over my bed, and the one shared laptop we had in the house all to myself. I didn't know what I wanted to do first. Watch a movie? Sing along to karaoke songs on YouTube? have a one-woman dance party. I settled upon watching a scary movie and turned off all the lights to set the mood. I was barely past the 30-minute mark when I heard a distant sound of snickering. For a few seconds, I convinced myself that it was just background noise in the movie that I was watching, but my reassurance faltered when I paused the film and still heard it. I was frozen in place. I didn't know what to do. I just waited for something to happen, but nothing did. I slowly shifted my position. The bed frame creaked under my weight as I did so. I planted both feet on the ground and paused for a few minutes. It was most likely one of my siblings who had came back early and was playing a prank on me, or it could have been one of the neighborhood kids. Whoever it was, I was a 16-year-old girl who wasn't taking any chances. I finally had the mind to scan the room for anything that I could use to defend myself. I shared my room with six and eight year old girls. The entire place was childproof and my best bet was a heavy sports trophy, but I figured that it was better than nothing. The snickering got louder and nearer. It turned into chuckles. I didn't know whether I wanted to wait in here until I was found or to do the finding myself. I took another long, hard look at the trophy in my hands and decided to wait. With each minute that had passed, the laughter increased in volume and enthusiasm. It sounded like a child who knew his parents were heading towards his hiding spot during a game of hide and seek, laughing with the voice of an adult. Then I heard what sounded like chairs being dragged across the hardwood floor. It didn't sound like it was with much purpose other than to clear them out of the way. A slippery, slobbery wet noise followed suit. It sounded familiar, yet it wasn't one that I had particularly heard before. Whoever was in the kitchen was slamming, ripping apart and mushing whatever it had in its hands. I heard squishes and squeals, and I could only assume it was some sick psychopath with a fetish of breaking into houses and mutilating large animals. Whatever it was, he was laughing throughout. I was terrified. 
There was this stranger in my kitchen laughing manically as he seemingly prepared himself a snack on the counter. There was an intruder in the downstairs of my house, the place where I had left my cell phone. I turned around to look at my laptop, wondering if the police would be able to respond to emails. I decided to give it a try anyways and tiptoed back to my bed. My trembling fingers struggled to type slowly and quietly, but I eventually managed to send an email and post for help on social media. An excruciating seven minutes passed until I heard someone pull up in the driveway. It didn't sound like the police though. I heard the sounds of heavy footsteps running up the front door, frantically jamming a key into the keyhole and swinging the door open. The laughter stopped for a brief second before it turned back into a roaring guffaw. A shriek and an ear-piercing scream penetrated the silence of the neighborhood and whoever produced it turned around and ran towards the street, taking their screams with them. The manic laughter followed suit and I finally dared to run to my bedroom window. I saw my sister running down the street while screaming, trying to attract as much attention as she could. By the looks of it, she was succeeding. Running in the opposite direction was a naked man covered in a massive amount of blood that I had only seen before on television. He was still roaring with laughter as he disappeared out of sight. I watched out the window as a posse gathered just outside my house. My sister hadn't stopped screaming. I realized that she wasn't trying to attract attention, but she was actually hysterical. And I did not want to go downstairs to greet whatever had brought my sister to such a state. The crowd grew larger as flashing red and blue lights arrived and the footsteps stormed into my house. I heard curses and wretches downstairs before someone finally called out. All I could manage to produce at first was a squeak. A female police officer appeared in my doorway and asked me if I was alright. She told me to follow her with my eyes closed. Great advice for a rebellious teenager. I noticed her grasp become tighter when we reached the bottom of the stairs, and I couldn't help treating myself to a peek. Through squinted eyes, I saw dismembered body parts of my mother neatly arranged beside her decapitated head on the kitchen counter. I passed out. 47 minutes. That's how long I spent listening to my mother being torn into, ripped apart, mutilated, and eaten. The person responsible for that ran straight to his nursing facility straight to his bedroom, and straight into bed. He laughed as they restrained him to his bed. He laughed as he was taken away in cuffs. He laughed as he was locked up in a cell. He laughed as he made eye contact with me in the courtroom as his sentence was being announced. I wouldn't be surprised if he was still laughing when I strapped him to the chair. He will never laugh again, nor will my mother. You know how in college, or when you're just dirt poor, you come to enjoy certain shit foods. Microwave burritos, cheap frozen pizza, I figured it's the same principle with long haul drivers and truck stops. I had only been on the road for two years before, and I had only been on it for another three after, but I had grown a taste for greasy sausage and bad coffee. This time, I couldn't enjoy the crappy meal on account of a man sitting two booths over. 
His appearance and clothes were normal enough, if a bit underdressed for the Colorado winter. I think it was the way that he stared, scanning the room like a damn Terminator, and that creeped me out. All he had in front of him was an untouched cup of decaf. I usually savored these little breaks, but this time I hurried to finish. Partially to beat the weather, and partially to get out from under those eyes. Before the waitress came with my check, the man took a seat in the booth across from me without asking. You a trucker? He had one of those accents that was impossible to place. Yeah. Would you allow me to ride with you? He said with an off-putting smile. What, to anywhere? You some sort of drifter? I have been for some time, but I'm heading home now, and I haven't been home in so long. Shit, you don't even know where I'm going. He blinked at that, the first time I seen the gesture from him. Then his smile widened. Oh, going over Vale Pass? Um, yeah, to Junction. And then? Salt Lake City. I knew this wasn't the 60s and big rigs weren't getting held up by the mob anymore. Even still, I figured if he asked me where I was headed next, I'd lie. You're definitely going where I need to go. I very much appreciate the lift. I'd like to help, that was a lie, but I'm not really supposed to pick up any hitchhikers. Company vehicle, see? I'm not sure how long the waitress had been there, but enough I suppose, cause she leaned over and whispered, please take him out of here, I'll comp your meal, he's been here all day eyeing me funny, please. Never have I learned to say no to a woman, so I sighed and told the stranger to follow me. What's your name? I asked as he took a seat. He shifted his weight and said, We don't need to know each other's names. Then added, Call me whatever you like. Fine by me, I said, not curious a bit about his name or story. I added a piece of jerky on the dash. How about Jim? If you like. Sorry, I said after a few chilly minutes of uncomfortable silence. Though the heater doesn't work all that great. It'll be nice to get home. He said, it's so much warmer than here. About that time, the snow started coming down real thick and I cut my speed in half. Another rig, thick with chains on the tires, was tearing down the mountain, clearly none too happy to be stuck behind me. I took the next pull off and the driver flashes hazards and thanks. What are we doing? Asked Jim after the familiar hiss of the air brakes quieted. Checking the weather report, strapping up the wheels maybe. Hmm, said Jim, his smile gone and brow creased. Then he nodded. Alright, I suppose that would be fine. I hadn't asked his opinion, but whatever. My phone was lucky to get any service, but I got my answers. Snow was expected to come in waves for several more hours. On this mountain, weather like that had been the end for more than one long hauler. I wasn't desperate enough for cash to risk it. I hate to do this to you, Jim, but we're stuck here. I said sincere. Four or five hours parked with my new friend did not sound fun. We don't look stuck. I just mean that it won't be safe to keep driving. I'll, I'll help you put your chains on, Jim said, his smile back. Nah, sorry. I don't push it going downhill on a snowy mountain. But I need to get home. It's just a few hours. He shook his head. Empty smile once again vanished. You don't understand. 
If we don't go now, I won't make it home until who knows when. It's a place, man. It isn't going anywhere. Jim paused. Yes, it isn't going anywhere. At least we agreed. His eyes followed a van with drivers apparently braver than myself. You wishing you hitched a ride with him? And he squinted, almost like he was trying to read the license plate. No, they aren't going where I'm going. That's too bad, but I'll still be headed to your home after the weather clears. No, you won't. I shivered, and I don't think it was because of the cold. Don't you have a job to do? Said Jim. I started to get angry, or maybe I was afraid, but I was shaking either way. Look, I can handle my own business, Jim. Nothing in the trailer is perishable. If I'm late, I'm late. No, he shouted, and I swear at that moment his face barely looked human. I insist you drive now. All right, that's enough, I said, hand ready to dart to the glove box where I kept my magnum. But I swear Jim's eyes bore right through that plastic, and he knew I was packing. Okay? My voice cracked. I don't like doing this, but you're freaking me out. I need you to leave, now. My eyes not leaving my passengers, my right hand still ready to grab the gun. I used my left to fish around the bag, a bottle of water, my spare coat, and a few sticks of jerky. I tossed it all on Jim's lap. The diner's only a couple miles back. Just stay off to the shoulder and you'll be fine. He just stared, motionless. I almost wish he exploded again. This is my truck. I'm telling you to leave. I don't need these, he said, dropping the coat in the bag, but taking the jerky from the dash. He didn't seem angry anymore. Sad, maybe. And then he hopped out. Wait, it's 10 degrees. Grabbing the gun and the coat, I darted outside, wincing at the wind. There was no sign of Jim, and his tracks stopped after 10 feet or so. I considered calling out, but I guess I was too relieved. Maybe that makes me a shit person, I don't know. But I got back into the cab, locked both doors, kept my revolver handy, and didn't sleep a week until Grand Junction, 10 hours later. Now, I'm sure that he was just some lunatic I picked up at a diner. I know that, but sometimes, on a snowy March night, can't help but wonder. Sometimes I wonder. I've always been the ugly duckling. I was bullied mercilessly through my high school years for my looks. It's left an undeniable impression on me throughout life and a physical impression as well. I've always self-harmed to take the pain away, but I'm done playing victim. I'm going to get surgery and blossom into the beautiful swan I always dreamt I could be. For the first time I could remember, I was generally happy. I was soaring on cloud nine. But as I left each doctor consultation, my mood plummeted. These were eye-popping prices they were talking about. For the amount of cosmetic work I wanted, it would take a lifetime to pay for everything. I went to my brother Tom's house to vent. To my shock, he said he could actually help me. He was a failed med student, but that was only because he smoked too much pot and missed classes. He said he would be able to get the medical supplies and conduct the surgeries himself. 
It sounds insane. I know. I too was understandably nervous about the idea of my brother performing surgeries on me outside of a hospital setting. But he showed me some videos of his trials during med school and it eased my mind. I couldn't continue life the way I was. I would rather risk death than live another day being this freak. The first thing I wanted were new breasts. My brother got the supplies and we set up a date for the surgery. I was shaking with anxiety, but he pumped me with some drugs and I was out like a light. When I woke up, I had a tremendous pain in my chest, but they were there. I had the breast I always wanted. He even fixed my deformed nipples. The scars looked hideous, but my brother assured me that they would lighten. Next, he performed a rhinoplasty for my new nose. Once again, the nose looked perfect, but the stitches surrounding were horrendous. I couldn't complain though. He was giving me thousands of dollars of surgery for free. I became addicted. I wanted more. I needed more. I immediately had work done to my ears within the same week. I walked out of the house with confidence for the first time, and I think the surgery was actually working. People were giving me looks everywhere I went. I hadn't got this much attention before. I was so excited. I wanted to go home to plan more surgeries. When I went to take a shower, I noticed something alarming. My breasts were discolored and pus oozed from the stitched area. After my makeup had been washed off and I looked in the mirror, my nose had the same issue. My ears as well. I was mortified and needed answers immediately. As I was about to call him, I saw his photo on the TV. Local man arrested in a string of grave robberies. My boyfriend was embarking on a business trip across the country. It would mark the first time we would be apart for an extended period of time since we began dating. As his truck backed out of the driveway, I felt my eyes water. We had only been together for a few months. Why was I already this attached? I dried my tears, caked my face with makeup, and headed to work. I prayed that my coworkers wouldn't be able to see this emotional wreck shimmering beneath the facade. Once I arrived, I knew I should have just called out sick. He consumed my thoughts and my mind was racing like an American pharaoh down the home stretch. I checked my phone every couple minutes. No text. No calls. Was his flight delayed? Had he not been boarded yet? I watched Final Destination for the first time this week. Why the fuck did I do that? I knew if I just heard his voice, all my worries would go away. When lunchtime arrived, I raced out to my car. I called him. No answer. I left a message, then texted him. Then again. Crickets. I was losing my mind, and if I returned to work like this, my job would be next. So I made up some bullshit excuse about a family emergency and booked it out of there. I needed to drive to the airport to find out what was going on. I needed to know that he was okay. As I made my way down the road, I decided to call again, straight to voicemail. Was he ignoring me? Was he already on his flight? My confusion only intensified when I saw a truck pass me in the opposite direction. Not any truck, his truck. Without thinking, I made an abrupt U-turn and started following him. I kept my distance so he wouldn't spot me, but there wasn't a business trip in the first place. Maybe he was hiding something from me. I followed him for miles until we hit a dirt road leading directly to a home. 
My heart sank when I saw a woman coming out to greet the truck. I could feel my blood boiling beneath my skin. My heart was pounding so hard, it looked like an alien would pop through my chest any moment. The woman was glowing with excitement as she talked through the truck window. I grabbed a screwdriver from the glove box and thought of how I would approach them. The truck door opened and he hopped out, but he wasn't my boyfriend. It was a man I'd never seen before. He popped the trunk to reveal the rolled up carpet. I stealthily exited my vehicle and hid in the brush nearby to listen in. I can't thank you enough. Dormwrecker should get back from her shift in a couple hours. Do what you want, just don't be messy. Having a stalker is living hell, constant anxiety, turning every corner in fear, leaving your phone off to avoid calls. It feels like my life has been wasting away and I'm simply playing a game of survival rather than living. It started when I began receiving anonymous letters in my mailbox. Each one became more menacing and explicit. It turned into photos being left, photos of me out in public, in my home, while I slept. It then erupted into an onslaught of terror, constant phone calls, obvious signs of tampering in my home, even death threats against family. This sole issue has shaped my life and the way I choose to live. My family distanced themselves a bit after the death threats towards them, then essentially told me to reach out once the situation had been handled. My friendships began to disintegrate. I guess I grew tired of my paranoia bringing down the mood. I had to quit my job because I became frightened to leave my house for such a long duration during the day. The only bright light in my life is my husband. While other guys shied away from dating me, he understood my fears and vowed to help me and support me in any way. I remember our first date ended with him staying the night in his car to look out for my stalker. His commitment and love is everything to me. That's why it hurts me that he's being dragged into this hell, constant letters threatening to kill him, having his tires spiked, and so much more. I remember a big commotion downstairs one night. My husband came sprinting back upstairs into my room and told me that there was a guy in our house, but he chased him out. I thank God for him being there, but I also die inside knowing I put him in this type of danger. My husband took a job at home to accommodate me and provide me with a constant sense of security. We are usually always together, but this day my husband had to go out. I was completely on edge, and to distract my mind, I decided to go on my old Facebook account. I grew bitter seeing all my former friends post about being out partying. I decided I would delete all my photos with them and rid them from my life for good. As I began deleting, I viewed an old photo of us at the beach, smiling, happy, free. In the background, I could see my husband. How funny, I thought. It's like one of those photos that foreshadow our destiny together. I clicked on the next photo and saw my husband in the background again. Then another, and another. I could feel the blood drain from my face and instant nausea set in. I shut down the computer and stared blankly ahead. I could see my husband's reflection staring back. The raid was swift and decisive, our entire town decimated in an instant. 
The poor souls unfortunate enough to survive the initial onslaught were now relegated to servitude. We had become pawns in their sick game. The rules were simple. Two individuals enter the arena and one comes out victorious. The winner received food. The loser wouldn't have to worry about eating again. We sat in individual pitch black pods until our captors dragged us out for battle. The wait between fights could last days, but it was impossible to know just how long. All I knew is that I was hungry. Correction, I was starving. It's been a while since my last brawl and the measly bowl of rice I earned from the blood-soaked victory. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to the battle pairings. Big versus small, old versus young, man versus woman. They don't care about an even fight, they just want carnage. Food deprivation inflicts unparalleled pain and misery on a human being. It affects the mind and body to a degree that words just simply can't justify. The sound the stomach makes when desperately pleading for a substance is chilling. The mind slows to a turtle-like crawl in an effort to maintain cognitive function. Random memories will flood your neocortex in an effort to block out the thought of food, but it's never successful. Suddenly, I hear the latch of my pod being lifted. My sanctuary has finally arrived. As I'm dragged into the arena, I try to mentally prepare myself for any type of opponent that could be thrown my way. A rotisserie chicken is shown on the Drumbotron, the bounty for this deathmatch. My lips salivate at the image on the screen. The size or experience of my opponent is now an afterthought. I was stand toe to toe with Zeus if it meant a morsel of that paltry. The screams and heckles of savages filling the stands shook the ground beneath me. As the gates ascended, I stared across the blood-drenched sand and surveyed my opponent. My heart momentarily stopped as I recognized the face of my opponent, my son. He was skeleton thin, fresh piss migrated down the pant leg, and a look of sheer terror plastered his adolescent face. I was overcome with emotion and immediately dropped to my knee in prayer. Thank you for allowing me to eat once more. I have a growing suspicion that my wife is trying to leave me. She's always been a bit of a complainer. I knew that from the time we met, but recently, it's been non-stop. Her list of complaints grow more each day, just like her unhappiness. She says I don't do enough to support her. She claims there's never been enough food or clothing for her, but there always seems to be enough alcohol for me. What a hypocrite. Alcohol is actually how we met. I almost laugh when she makes these asinine comments. Doesn't she know I'm trying my best? I never realized how expensive it would be to settle down with a girl, yet I always take extra shifts at work to scrounge what little I can. I know that she thinks about other men, and she certainly thinks I have interest in other women. She always barks at me to never bring another girl back to the house. She taunts me and says if a girl wound up with me, it would ruin their life. How lowly my wife thinks of me. She makes me out to be the cold one in our relationship. But our fifth anniversary is this week and she didn't even acknowledge it. She spent that day telling me how awful I was and how she wanted to move back in with her parents. Leave me for her parents? The same parents you couldn't wait to get away from when our young love blossomed. 
every once in a while she'll go on a huge tirade about how she'll kill me or she'll get in contact with the cops for how I've treated her. Part of me hopes she follows through. She's the one that hits me and constantly berates me with abusive language whenever I go near her. Maybe it's time everyone knew she wasn't the angel they made her out to be. She's been quieter than usual and I feel like today is the day she actually builds up the courage to leave me. The day she tosses aside financial support, consistent love and affection, and tries to begin anew. I pretend to go to work, but I park around the corner. Bingo. I see my wife frantically pounding on the window, screaming on the top of her lungs. I sigh, get out of the car and walk towards the house, before she alerts the neighbors. I could have never foreseen this type of behavior out of a runaway that was so eager to come back to my house and share a drink over five years ago.